Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and uh, sorry for my uh, clogged up nose this time. It's it's the heating season start, so it is what it is. But today I wanted to talk about something more important, more meaningful, I suppose, more philosophical, because I've been looking at the current events in Ukraine and in Israel and, well, everywhere, to be honest. And it always strikes me when everyone who's like commenting this from a mainstream position, they always come back to the very one aspect that uh, somehow hits the most. The value of human life. A lot of uh, commentators I've read have spoken about when comparing Israel to Hamas and in this situation, the fact that Israel and about the hostages, specifically, that Israel has, I think, a couple of times at least, changed more than thousand Hamas terrorists for one of their own. And at the same time, uh, if I watch people, Russian uh, opposition commentators about the war, like Michael Naki, and this is from him. He, at this point, while commenting on this situation, said that uh, in the West, people are overestimating the value of human life in the sense that everyone's so afraid of violence that right now people are shocked that there's even a ground operation being done by Israel. And he also said that people are shocked in the West that, yes, you know, Ukraine also has to fire bullets and kill people in their own war. And at the same time, I'm watching a channel on YouTube about economics called economics explained and, and everything they're doing is reducing everything to the sheer numbers you know sheer numbers of how much someone would pay in their taxes how much they would uh, produce economical value of this and at the same time i'm also reading uh, about merkava tanks and the new model that the israeli army has introduced and how the main purpose of the tank is to protect more people so no matter how you look at this, at this war, at everything, you come down to, well, what then is the value of a human life? Because this seems to be the topic that, that's getting up all the time right now. And at which point, and what human life, and for what reasons? And it, it doesn't seem honest to me if I wouldn't ask my good friend, Anthony Barthaway, who's going to receive Victor in a few days, I think maybe tomorrow even, 
who is way more connected to Israel than I am. But in this context, if it jumps out all the time and there are just so many questions about human lives, everything is measured in lives, then, then what is a life and why does it matter so much? And what makes it special in Israel? And I thought, uh, I thought it would be nice, dear comrades, if we would have Anthony on the show. Sorry for the long introduction, Anthony, but I, I hope that you at least understood why I sort of needed you in this episode. I hope I can give some input to this pretty intimidating question that you shot me earlier. Oh yeah, th- this is intimidating, but uh, I thought I'd do way worse off because, look, like we all know, when, when, when I'm in Ukraine, I'm the lucky one. Uh, you, you're the competent one and Victor is the talented one and Victor is going to Ukraine and I'm out. So I'd rather not be lucky here because it's uh, too heavy of a topic to think about. What value is it then? How do we even measure this? How do we even start talking about this? Because for me, it's kind of weird then when, when every time, you know, political commentators and economists and everyone, they just assign some value to human life so easily, like it was nothing. And I can't do that. I'm afraid of doing that. What do you think? That's basically, you know, one of the ideas behind, you know, the cyberpunk genre of reducing the, the human to an economic unit to basically something that can be traded. It's not, I reject that entirely. Um, you sent me this question of like what value is a human life and you wanted to hear it a bit from a jewish perspective as well considering you know that's what i am and uh, it's being asked in the context of israel and many people have seen the movie uh, schindler's list uh, so this is the bit of the talmud that i think more people know than others which is to save one life is to save the world entire like every individual human life is worth an entire universe there's no reducing it to anything less than that you can break any rule in order to save a human life within you know jewish law you can you can break the sabbath you can do all anything you want uh almost uh to if there is a life in danger that has to be saved right then and there every individual person no matter who they are no matter how uh, horrible or wretched they are is an entire world of experiences is somebody that somebody loves hopefully that has connections with other humans that are unique to that individual person so to have a measurable value to that is impossible in in my estimates yeah but that's that's the issue here because currently in this war also not just with Israel, but also with, with Ukraine, it's all these prison exchanges and everything, you know. Someone's more valuable, someone isn't more valuable. And then we come to the hostages, and this called tragedy thing just gets me even harder. It might surprise to you, the listeners, but when I heard about Israel uh, two years ago, I wouldn't feel this as personal as I do now. It's just because what a missile strike is did not mean to me as much as it does right now because I have seen missile strikes in Ukraine. So when, when, when someone talks about hypothetical missile strike and people fleeing in fear and being taken hostages and, you know, I have seen those things now myself. So it hits different when, when this happens. And you can't really understand what's, what's going on there. And the main question here would be, what what is then the the limit? I mean, it, all the rules must be broken, everything. But where do you go, and how do you how do you solve this? Because again, this is a question about dehumanizing people. This is a question about what's going to happen next, especially in Israel. Here, I've I've heard Israel calling this their nine eleven, which is comparable, comparable. Yes, 
However, we all know, as Dan Carlin found here, that the United States made a bunch of very stupid laws after the actual 9-11. So a lot of things happen in a hasty manner. And, and again, this whole thing comes down to human lives. What, what do you think is going to happen? Because a lot of people here, at least also in Latvia, because I've spoken to people in the community, it's weird when I, I see people who would normally be for human lives, just like you said, just yelling out that, uh, you know, all the Gaza Strip must be just turned into a scorched earth with nothing standing. I don't really think that really follows anything, uh, well, the Bible or Torah or, I don't know, whatever you believe teaches you to. What is, what is this thing? Where, also, where's the border of mercy in this case? The hard questions, Anthony, but this is a hard episode. I mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. The logic there is that... And I'll get to the, the topic of prisoner exchanges later, because this does come into play. Yeah, of, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Just, I can't even formulate proper yeah, questions yeah, yeah, to yeah. be concise right now. It's really hard to do because of all the emotions. That's why I wanted you on, because you, you, you probably understand what I mean, so... Thank you for this. Yeah, we'll start broad on that then. Um, Yeah, I think that in the aftermath of a tragedy, people do become very irrational and make decisions that are detrimental uh, to their themselves and everybody else. Uh, Like 9-11 comparison, of course. 9-11 was a horrific tragedy in American history that everybody feels to this day. But afterwards, more damage was caused in the response to 9-11 than if we had done nothing at all afterwards. If we had just left it there, less damage would have happened to the world than what came of it. I mean, that's a whole podcast series of you know what the horrible uh repercussions were of the response to 9-11 so people act out of fear out of i feel it myself uh with the the war in ukraine is that when you are targeted with this kind of violence it builds hatred in you that you may not even think you're capable of before Like, I do genuinely hate the Russian army with every ounce of my soul in a way that me beforehand did not think I was capable of hating that much. Uh, And that is for something that's pretty unambiguous. (laughs) Like, there's no, this isn't Israel-Palestine. This is not any kind of conflict like most conflicts in the world that are two-sided of, they say this, they say that. This is a very one-sided Uh, kind of conflict, although I'm sure everyone thinks their conflict is. Uh, But right now we're stuck in this system of you react to the violence that happened and everything feels like it is just an unthinking response. You know, just this happened, therefore this also had to happen. And then because this happened, this will have to happen. Uh, the people of uh, Gaza, especially, have been, you know, stuck in this blockade. They're not allowed to leave. Within everything else, the image of some of these people being able to leave Gaza for the first time, if that was completely divorced from the horrible violence that occurred, 
that could have been a type of inspiring image that I wouldn't be able to really argue against is just the image of him able to these people able to walk through the fence for the first time in their lives. Their grandparents may have come from just a few kilometers on the other side of that fence and they have not been able to go there since the the barrier was built, if even beforehand. Tucked away into that, if it wasn't for the violence that occurred immediately after, that would have been a whole different story. But that violence did occur. And therefore, there's going to be a response. And there's going to be a response to the response and so on and so forth. Is there a way to break the cycle? I have no idea. Uh, if I, If anyone had a brilliant idea of how to do that, then here's your Nobel Peace Prize times a million. But there's going to be a horrible suppression of the people of Gaza. Many are going to die, and most of the people who are going to die are not going to be Hamas. It's that simple. It's going to be people are just living there, and their family are going to carry that hatred with them forward um, to cause the next outburst of violence, no matter where that may be. I think that the most important lesson that I've learned from from all this, including the Paul Valley of thing, is that I think this should show to everyone that uh, building a wall to distance yourself, just to ignore the problem, is the wrong solution. The problem doesn't go away if you build a wall. If you just, you know, zone something in, it's it's not the right right way. Yeah, I, that's that's really why this happened uh, ultimately because. This was a unique occurrence. This has not happened before in the entire history of the state of Israel, this type of event. So we do have to look at it as something unique. And what are the unique conditions right now is that, well, any kind of peace process had ended. And beyond that, the Arab states uh, have basically completely abandoned the Palestinian cause with the various peace deals that they've been making with Israel. and. There was this is always done with the understanding that they were supposed to then promote the Palestinian cause and you know make the the Palestinian people better off, but that never happened. Um, the Saudis are not about to do that. The Emiratis didn't. Um, nobody is. Hamas, where the Palestinians broadly were stuck in this position of there are no ways out, and Hamas decided, well, if this desperation is going to be there. We might as well be, you know, the face of this desperation. Don't let somebody else do it before us. I think that's really what it came down to, is that all avenues for any kind of peaceful solution were completely destroyed. There has been some prospects with integrating the Israeli Arab population. Uh, there's been some some strides forward with that lately. But in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, with non-Israeli citizen Palestinians, there's no future something bad was going to happen. And that's not to excuse it. Obviously, this is... I've been in horrible like psychological pain ever since this happened, but to understand why it happened, that's kind of why. You know, the worst part about this, you'll understand probably, which, which I've seen, uh, at least in our Discord, you should join if you haven't already. I've seen the caricature made, and the very dumb one, the dumbest reaction to this whole situation you could possibly get I don't, I don't know who made this, but there was this political sort of uh, caricature there, which was like a Molotov cocktail in Ukraine colors and media calling it heroes, and then Molotov cocktail in Palestine colors, and that's like terrorists. Someone tried to make a comparison between that and that, and uh, 
I'm just so tired after after everything happening to just explain how wrong and horrible this is. Yeah, um, it just uh, it, it just hit me to no end, and and that's another thing. That's another thing about the whole value situation. I wouldn't want to kill anyone, but there are certainly a, a whole list of people whom I just rather if if I would see them personally in real life, I would just just instantly just start just hitting them without without even thinking about this because at this point. At this point, it's not about even being dumb, but at this point, it's about having no empathy at all and just not understanding the level of, of how, how much people can suffer at all. And then people are going to use this and abuse this and, and it's going to be pretty bad. Again, just to get votes, because we come back again to the, the value of human life. Yeah, the, the Ukraine-Palestine uh, comparisons, the way you conduct a resistance actually does matter. Um, this may seem like a controversial statement, but if during the next raid into Russian territory, the you know the this Russian volunteer corps or whatever decides to you know slaughter a thousand people, rape a bunch of women, burn babies in their cribs, uh, I don't need to go into all the graphic details. I'm sure you can find the videos yourselves if you're really need to see the evidence of what's going on there if ukraine did that to russian civilians on the other side of the border even russian civilians who may be supporting the the war against ukraine supporting um bucha and all that if that was done to them what hamas just did that would be completely morally unacceptable to the point of really calling into moral question uh, the Ukrainian resistance as a whole. Uh, we do every kind of resistance has faced these questions and to pretend that it's just a moral blank check to do whatever you want is just completely absurd on one end and philosophically lazy on the other. On the, on the, on the other hand, I have to also add here that of course, how you conduct yourself matters. This is why Ukraine's be very careful. But also, which is the other other end of the spectrum here, no matter what you do, people will find that, you know, which is why I kind of hate the people who are like all super pacifist. I just want the fighting to stop and everything. You know, people who will take any sort of um, violence to defend yourself as some sort of evil. Just like right now, you know, people who are just wishing that Ukraine also should stop fighting. No, it's Ukraine's territory. And right now people are being, again, look at what Israel is doing. They're using violence, but of course they are. The fact that the double standards here, you know, the double standards here, the fact that at one point um, you have to understand that, yeah, you have to be very careful about how you conduct yourself for the average person. But if someone really wants to find you guilty, to, to find you to be a monster, then they will. They just will. Nothing will change. Yeah, I agree. Um, people will look for whatever they need to find. And if they don't find it, they'll just make stuff up. Um, we've, we've seen that with all the disinformation that has been going on. And even when bad things are happening, people will still make things up in order to have even more bad things. Yeah, and and the, the, this is the this is also the weird part, because um, Ramzan Kadyrov already stated that he's pro-Hamas. Just saying. I think the fighter called Usmanov from, from Chechnya also declared that all Jews must die, literally. 
And then uh, all the Russian propaganda channels, all the Z pro-war channels are also like, oh, look at the Israel, uh, Palestine is like best friends and everything. And I have to come back to the fact that they all still claim that Ukraine are the Nazis, you know? Yeah, of course. Everything. At this point, with this tragedy happening, with this tragedy happening, I see people who are pro-Russia at the point where, where those very same people they're praising deaths of, of Jewish people and still stating that they are somehow fighting against Nazism. It's not, it's not how dumb you must be. It's not about intelligence. It's about how either the meanings of words are different or, or are we, Anthony, somehow different than, than those people? Like, I do not feel any hatred towards my fellow man and I feel sad when people die. Maybe that's not normal these days. Maybe, maybe we, we live in a society where I should just, you know, care about something else i just sometimes don't get it and this again comes back to the the theme of this whole show the the value of a human life because to to me there's a lot of value in human life i might make mistakes i might i might make you angry have have done so and i definitely can make snarky jokes and get myself into trouble or whatever i simply cannot cannot see myself cheering on someone who's doing this I, i cannot even grasp this are we not normal? What is the new normal then? Why, why so much hate even? I, I simply don't get it. I mean, maybe, maybe you know something better because you know, I'm, I'm a Latvian. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm technically Jewish, but only on a technical level. So I haven't been exposed to all this stuff. Uh, I, how can those people like, who, who support Hamas at this point on the Russian side and, and cheer on for them, how do they, how do they go to sleep? How do they watch in the mirror? Even without any morality, how do these people who claim they are fighting Nazis in Ukraine, they are now supporting Hamas and calling for extermination of Jews, yet at the same time, they're still claiming that Ukraine are the Nazis. It's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I simply can't, I, I have no words for this. I, I cannot comprehend this. Yeah, so there's two questions in there, and I'll get to them. But first, I do want to point out that uh, actually within Israel, there is a village called Abu Ghosh. Uh, Abu Ghosh is ethnic Chechen. Um, they moved there like a long time ago. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, so but they're ethnic Chechen, basically Palestinian, like you know, ethnicity, nationhood is made up, but uh, some of these people are ethnic Chechen, and in this village there is actually a mosque named after Kadyrov. I think it's his father. I don't think it's about Ramzan. I think it's about Ramzan's father, but mm-hmm. it's the Kadyrov Mosque. Oh, no. And um, a Hamas rocket nearly hit the Kadyrov Mosque in Abu Ghosh. So he's never been one to you know protect the good name of his clan but i think that uh kind of degrades it even further but um the two questions here of well the russians how can they say nazis i think this is a topic that has been i've at least i've gone over quite a bit which is the whole deal with you know russians and calling people nazis and the anti-Semitism thing. It's its not connected. They just see... I know, I know, that, but there's a certain limit to this, okay? I know that's not connected and they call Nazis whatever, but but they have to understand the, the fact that, you know, if you actively call for extermination of Jews and support Hamas in this situation, you must have some sort of ties in your brain that even if Nazism means something else than what you think it means, right? At this point, you must sort of at least 
have some brain cells to understand that you're kind of, you know, being the evil guys. It's just, this went over some limit here, which is why I wanted you on, because you you are a bit more level-headed than I am in this case. It's just that, to me, this kind of breaks some limit. I, I don't know. There's layers to this. So the first layer is just some people will value the lives of those in their circle. You know, the family, the community, people they know are the ones who they consider fully human, really. And other people are an abstraction. So their lives are abstractions. It's not like your friend dying. We all do this. Someone dying in Colombia does not register as much to me as if my cousin was to die. That's just how humans are in general. You can't really judge somebody for that. But that does reach extremes where when these people far away are abstractions and you can treat their lives as abstractions, they be, it can kind of become a game. And that what leads it down to my second layer here, which is that there is a lot, especially within, you know, Russian media, you know, the promotion of their war against Ukraine. There's a lot of performative cruelty. There's a lot of who can say the most outrageous, like, machismo flexing kind of thing and it kind of leads to this big spiral of competition of who can be more bloodthirsty than the next uh this is not just a russian trait you can have you been on the internet lately well, uh, yeah i sadly have it's 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 all over the place it's a it's a competition to see who can be more awful and there's like a a thrill that people get out of that. Like who can be the most cynical? Who can be, we need to destroy all of X people out there and don't see them other, these people as, you know, real people with real feelings. Then it's easy to, I don't know. Like I remember a long time ago, there was not that long ago, but It was not exactly outside the mainstream to make jokes about, you know, the Yugoslav genocides, you know, remove Turk and all that. Like that's that's a that that was from a song about, you know, literally exterminate the Bosnians. And for the longest time, people would, especially on, you know, the, you know, uh, paradox games and all that would just say remove Turk like a joke. And the joke behind that is the deaths of thousands of people. Yeah, but you know, see, that joke is, is a different thing than a personal level because you do that in a video game in a way. And the joke there, when it gets to thousands of people, I feel like you, you're okay of making jokes about that because, like, Soviets made a lot of jokes about gulags too. This is a way of coping. But there's one thing when you kind of make jokes about it, and there's another thing when you actively, you know, people who make jokes about gulags. I highly doubt that when actually asked and confronted with it, they would actually, you know, root for the active extermination of things. And and then there's this level of bizarro, weird reality that we live in. With the same type of like Margaret Simonjan, which I spoke about recently, with her calling of uh, like nuke Siberia. Well, Simonjan is a whole other bundle of pathologies, considering that you know a, a large armenian population was just ethnically cleansed from nagorno karabakh and she outright cheered it on and told them that they should have been more grateful if you don't know she's ethnic ethnic armenian is my point here so she she is yeah we're we're on to the point it's it, living right now feels like reading a history book we have 
ethnic conflicts all over the place. And we have a bunch of countries that are like failed states at this point. I, I, I look at uh, what's happening in Haiti and, and it's even worse than ever. Pakistan's on the verge of collapse and, and then the Sri Lanka and all this. The worst part is that I remember that my, my grandma, Miriam Freiman, uh, before her marriage, then she became Miriam Andresson, but she was Miriam Freiman. Uh, you can probably guess her ethnicity. Um, but 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 she said she said to me when she was still alive that she, she had born in the twenties and she said that you know it's so good that we don't have war these days it's so good that we we've moved past war and that you know she was a, she was a doctor and she said that it's really great that we we've also lacked major diseases that we've dealt with this she died in two thousand fourteen it kind of hits me real hard when you when you know that it's it's all this stuff that I was raised with that we should take for granted we lack wars we lack all this horror. Now it's happening, and at the same time, I'm researching this and, and, and the early war and everything. That right now in Israel, people were like more empath empathetic, but right now, like uh, in, in two weeks, I bet that everyone's going to be talking about the economical damage to Gaza Strip and, and how much in tax money and revenue has this cost Israel and all this stuff, like all the economy stuff. Like it was, it was nothing. Everything's going to be like turned into some 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 number crunchy thing. Yeah, people do have short attention spans. I, you know, maybe this is our way of coping with this tragedy. You know, maybe, maybe this is what Stalin meant when he said that you know one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Maybe this is just how you cope with this, and, and we're just yeah. There is you know empathy overload as well. Like you can only pay attention to so many tragedies that are happening at any one given time. And I think after you kind of pass a certain threshold, then it just becomes kind of nihilist. Like, here's another bad thing that happened. And it's hard for me to judge people too harshly. These two things we're talking about now, you know, the Ukraine and Israel are both things I'm very much tightly bound to in both my personal history, my, my friends, my family. So I can't look away from either of them, obviously. But... I know that there are other tragedies in the world that I don't have much bandwidth for. There was just a big earthquake in Afghanistan today. And considering the the poor state of everything in Afghanistan, I'm sure that the death toll will is going to be big and long-lasting and a humanitarian disaster that lasts for years. But it feels horrible to say it, but I'm not going to think about it that much. There's also limits, and I never thought I would hit this point. But, but you have your point here, because I also never thought, you know, when you live in a peaceful, nice, more or less peaceful planet, where everything's more or less okay, you never know when your limit hits. You think that you'll, you'll always be able to care for, for everyone and everything all the time, and then you understand that you're probably... You just can't because there is too much. Maybe for you, the limit of caring is, is actually higher than for some other people because you can manage to keep up with this. There is a limit to everyone. And like you said, you can't really judge people, especially just after COVID. That's a bit, uh, that's a bit weird. We got this COVID thing and then we, and then we got into this mess. Hello there. And thanks for listening to another episode of the Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other 
other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. I wanted to ask you specifically because because uh, you're Jewish. Uh, we've been we've been through quite a lot. Why is Israel in this very specific case so? I don't know, more humane, I suppose, more concerned about its people than uh, other nations in this case because of Merkava tanks and everything. Because constantly I get this uh, get this message that the number one thing for Israel is its people. It's in it's in its military doctrine. It's in everything that they do. This is why they, they make these trades. They go to extremes, even that what other countries would call extremes, you know, uh, to the point where, uh, you know, it, it feels a bit different. I don't get it because every Jew seems to matter to Israelis much more than, for example, Latvians matter to Latvian government and Americans matter to American government. You guys go out of your way to prove, to just grab everyone and you're super diverse. I like the point where uh, when you mentioned, which I, by the way, I quote to people that if you want to know how Earth government would look like, you just look at Israeli government because, you know, it's people from all over the planet with totally different ideologies coming together and trying to live together. What makes Israel so caring? Because that is somewhat of a unique take. I, I really don't know about any other government that would so much, so much care about people to this degree. Well, you have to keep in mind why the state of Israel was created in the first place, which is to have a safe place for Jews to live. The Zionist movement came up in the end of the 19th century after there was a tremendous amount of violence against the Jewish people, especially in Eastern Europe. There was the assassination of the Tsar in 1880, I want to say around then, that afterwards, everything was blamed on the Jews. Jews did it, and it led to a series of pogroms, um, these um, mob state protected mob violence against Jews throughout the Russian Empire. Yeah, that's the traditional saying. If there is no water in, in, in your tap, that, that means Jews have drank all of it. Uh, so in this is the context that, that Zionism formed in, was there is no one out there to protect you against your, besides your other Jews. They formed up, you know, self-defense squads. And really the event that 
really tipped it was the Kishinev pogrom. Currently, uh, Kishinev, the capital of Moldova, then Kishinev, a, a city in the Russian Empire. The Russian Orthodox Church there basically accused uh, the Jewish community of murdering a kid and did a horrible uh, pogrom against them. Was all these people killed. And I think that is what really is what sets people off with this particular event as well is that we know what suicide bombs look like we know what rockets look like that is how things been and while of course it led to reprisals and everything things had for example in gaza kind of settled settled to an equilibrium where gaza will send rockets every once in a while israel will bomb them back and you know, a couple of weeks later, it'll go back to zero level again until we start it all over two years from now. But here, the type of violence that was done was much more reminiscent of the type of violence that led to the creation of Zionism in the first place. This very personal violence of one person breaking into a Jewish home, raping the wife while the husband looks on before killing the family and grabbing the kids from 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 the festival too i mean that really hit me because for for one i i don't go to fest i used to go to festivals but but evie goes to festivals and everything and it like represents essence too like there's just these kids having a party this is kind of very stupid because i have a lot of complaints versus benjamin netanyahu mm-hmm. a lot of them so do you know me we can go all day about but bb Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But that's not the point. The point is that even if you have legitimate complaints against some government, you just don't randomly smash and grab anyone that moves. And just currently, I'm really sad that we live in a day and age where Russia did it with civilians in Ukraine, and now Hamas has done it. And, and those are all deaths that are just unjust and, and painful. They, they hurt. It's weird. And I, I might be weird because I have, I have all this empathy and everything. And I kind of want to ask this because I don't remember which movie was this, but um, th- there was a character from the Caucasus region, I think from Dagestan, it was a Soviet movie. He just asked in Russian, one of the other characters, you had a mom, you had a dad, and why are you so evil? 
And I don't get it. This is the level of evil that I simply don't get. This is the, the gleefulness, the stupidity. I mean, I can understand why someone like, you know, might, might shoplift from something. You know, I might understand why like, some political riots might happen, but I can't understand why you just go out and do some violence of, of this sort. The biggest issue here is also, if you look at the bigger picture, is that currently, at least in Latvia, of course, there are people in Eastern Europe, especially because, you know, not like average Latvian and average Eastern European understands the difference. Of course, we have a ton of parties who are now going out and claiming that, oh, look, it's all Muslims that are evil. They're like blaming Muslims in general for this. And it's going to go the other way around. And, and we're going to see a bunch of people who are going to do this. By the way, it's interesting enough because uh, in Latvia, it's like also its own, its own things. It's going to turn around and, and a lot of innocent a lot of really Muslims who have nothing to do with this issue. They're going to be victims of hate crimes also because of this, because now in some, some teenager's mind who doesn't read the news, who doesn't understand better, you know, he, he'll be given a justification where to unload his own hatred as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, after 9-11, which was, you know, the, the reference that was made earlier, there was a very large wave of hate crimes against not just Muslims, but anyone who could vaguely look like a Muslim to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, so th that's just what's going to happen now, probably. But yeah, just to, to round off the answer to that last question, though, um, that was the whole reason why Zionism was created, is to have a safe place to go. Um, there was, you know, a poem by Haim Bialik, the city of slaughter, describing the the massacre in Kishinev, and how uh, people went quote like lambs to the slaughter, which was not technically true. There was local resistance to it, but it very much got stuck in the Jewish mind that for two thousand years we did not have a Jewish army with Jewish weapons to protect Jewish lives. And that led to, you know, 2000 years of horror. And so we needed to be able to defend ourselves. And that is the entire purpose of the state of Israel is to protect Jewish lives. And if they can't do that, they've, it's a catastrophic failure on not just a political level, but on like a national identity level, you can't let Jews die, especially in that way. It kind of makes sense. And you have to keep, you know, honest to, to your ideals. Americans love their constitution, right? They love those ideals. I guess the Jewishness and the ethnicity would make sense for, for Israel. I mean, here in Latvia, we, we value our, our tribal, pagan tribal uh, identities. You know, we have administrative divisions are based on that. Kind of makes sense. I mean, yeah, you gotta ask, what's the point on doing all this, all, all this mess? So I thought I'd ask a question, maybe you can answer this one. What's the difference between the Gaza Strip and the rest of Palestine? That's the thing that I kind of don't get. As far as I've been told, and people who know tell me that it's kind of like two different things, why can't we just, you know, maybe help the Palestinians and the other side to help get control over there? I mean, then again, that's the same question of why doesn't Russia take control of, of Chechnya? But I think in Gaza Strip might be more realistic, I suppose. In the West Bank, I've been all over the West Bank. I haven't been to Gaza. It's much more complicated to get to Gaza. But I have been virtually everywhere in the West Bank. And the general opinion of every single Palestinian I've ever spoken to is that 
the Palestinian Authority is basically worthless, that they are very corrupt, they are doing nothing to protect the Palestinian people, basically are just collaborator government with the Israelis, they do whatever the Israelis tell them to do, only for Israel to uh, throw it in their face. Um, Abu Mazen, uh, the you know, the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority is looked at as like this incredibly weak figure who does nothing good for anybody. So the idea of asserting Palestinian Authority control over Gaza, it can be forced, I suppose. I don't, I don't even think that you can force that on, on Gaza, but if you were to do so, then it would dissolve almost immediately. There'd just be another faction that comes up to take Hamas's place because the reason why Hamas is even there to begin with is they were seen as just better for the cause in general than the Fatah, uh, the, the other political party that dominates the Palestinian Authority. You, you, you can't force that kind of thing on them. There could be a... Uh, you know, another election. But if there's another election, then it doesn't solve the core problems there. There'd just be some other faction that takes the place of what Hamas stood for. So right now we have the situation, of course, in Gaza, where there is no direct Israeli presence and uh, Hamas is the government in Gaza, whereas uh, Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, is the government in West Bank, although that's divided in all kinds of ways. Ultimately, Hamas, no matter how unpopular they may broadly be, they're nowhere near as unpopular as the alternative. So, like, a political unity situation just, just doesn't work. Yeah, well, a lot of things kind of don't work, especially about the fact that, you know, a lot of people are now criticizing Israel's response to this. You remember about Najer, you know, their, their coup and the fact that ECOWAS, I think, was the organization that was about to, you know, declare war and everything. Yeah. And then they didn't. And then they let the ultimatum slip and no war was declared. And then you have to ask, what's, uh, what's worse? Either announcing a strong answer, military answer, and then doing it, or just making empty threats once again. The same with Putin and everything that he says. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I remember reading back uh, back in college days that there was this view of the postmodernist view, the history's over and we, we've outlived all, all this necessity of everything. But, but once again, I, I, th- I think the big issue with, with people who kind of disapprove of, of Israel now commencing land operations or Ukraine fighting back, to, to me at least it seems that it's very comfy, you know, when, when you're sitting in your your warm, uh, warm, safe place somewhere in the West, right? Condemn any violence whatsoever and just not make any differences and, and to just be like super peaceful or something and not understand that sometimes the life is, isn't all peachy and sometimes dirty things must happen and sometimes there will be casualties and bombs exploding and, and the carriage bridge exploding and everything. It's just that this this i'm mostly stunned by again by the west by the, by the same people who claim that you know ukraine's should just stop fighting and all the peace talks and everything they are the same people who are now stating that oh no israel they shouldn't attack it's all about the palestinians all, all this stuff it's just i feel it's so hypocritical because to me right now and we have people in chat and we'll turn to the chat now people right now in chat are talking about how um 
how being a pacifist right now is kind of being hypocritical. How if if you're strictly very much not willing to use violence in some cases, then, then you just lead to more deaths. It's kind of a harsh lesson when we've been grown to, you know, feel kind and nice and everything. Again, maybe I misunderstand something, but we're, we're just, we just have to relearn how to be violent again, I suppose. Feel, feels so strange. I mean, feels surreal. And again, maybe hurts me more than it should because I was, I was in Ukraine with you and we saw those buildings and everything and, and uh, yeah, to those of you who probably are, are new to this, uh, Anthony is, is uh, a very kind soul that allows allows me to stay at his place when I'm in Ukraine, and he's been has been with me and to, to many many adventures. Victor is going there. Yeah, you know, just just peeking at the chat, there is some complaint on that. But I wanted before I, I turn to the chat, I just wanted to ask you, ask you the question: What that is the value of a, of a human life in general in these days? What what has it become? Where should we draw the line, and and when is it going to be too bad when when this happens? Because it is getting pretty horrible. It's getting to the point where I never thought I'd see twenty first century. I think that a lot of this comes down to things being treated as abstractions, valuing abstractions over human life. Often, with a lot of like the reactions you're seeing online, it's because people are. And I am saying that there's some complaints in the chat. I just want to get that out there of of me like putting too much value on the Jewish life here. I was I can only speak from my own perspective. Of course, I very much see that horrible tragedy in Palestinian deaths as well. I've protested at, at settlements. I've done the whole thing. I'm not saying that any reaction is justified. 100% not saying that. Do, do not let the chat intimidate you. You, you intimidate them more than I know. I, 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 I'm just peeking over at it right now. And I think that a lot of what's going on, especially overseas, which is always a problem, people looking at a situation in the most abstract sense and not caring about the people there. <laughs> Random people in the middle of the U.S. who have no connection to either side of this conflict who suddenly become, you know, the most diehard, fanatical partisans that exist because it's a game, because it's an abstraction. They don't care about anyone who's actually involved. It's just ideas floating in the ether. I like to compare this to the point where uh, in Latvia, uh, I think a couple of years ago, in 2018 or something, I remember this very clearly, we had a small boy uh, and he was just, you know, if like, 12, 11 or something. He ran away from home for a bit, just wanted to explore things, and he died. He sadly died because he took a intercity bus, then he exited in a random stop, and then he just walked in the woods and just you know got lost and died there. And he died because no one cared about him. And no one like asked him, no one asked any questions, no one like paid any attention to him. And after he died, and after, after this tragedy was found out, everyone in Facebook started just posting these uh, images with his flag on top and like... Of course. ...caring so much. And it's kind of weird where people want to, want, to, want to choose to show that they care instead of seeing the actual part of caring and everything. It's, this is kind of, kind of ironic because we, we, had, we had plague experts, then we had war experts, and now we're going to have... Israeli-Palestine conflict experts of all things. Again, I'm going to turn to chat before. I, th I think you have to understand that 
maybe it's the high time when people and, and Twitter and other places stop being experts of everything and remain and understand that there's always a human out there with views and real sufferings and pain and that this is not some some random game, like you said, that it shouldn't become a game for any, for anyone. Yeah, I think that's my my ultimate point here is that at the end of the day, with everything with the Israel-Palestine conflict, what we have is a couple million Jews and a couple million Palestinians, roughly equal in number on either side, living in this area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. No matter what violence happens, eventually, at some point, people will have to live with each other. I don't believe that there is going to you know, be an outright genocide of either side, which is the only other option there, um, and not one that I think any right-thinking person could ever even flatter with, uh, have like ever tried to happen. So at some point, you'll have to figure something out where you stop killing each other, hopefully, and nothing happening right now is working towards that goal. Oh, yeah, we're, we're pretty bad at that. Uh... Subtle Knife? Subtle Knife is uh, one of our... She, she's our admin of the Discord server. Subtle Knife, please, please pick some, some interesting questions for us to answer. Give me, give me some, some questions here. I'm trying to, to read through it. Subtle Knife uh, is, is someone you don't know, but she's very well known in my Discord. She uh, holds all my passwords and, and she's the admin of, of this Discord channel. We wouldn't be anywhere without her. Over on my Discord as well, actually. We'll do the plugs later. Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> Everyone, by the way, uh, if you haven't already listened to Ukraine Without Hype, it's a much more uh, better produced uh, show than mine. Anthony uh, is, is a way more academical person, although I know him in real life. I know he can make uh, terribly awful black black jokes as well and has a terrific sense of humor as well, which is kind of necessary if you <laughs> if you work in a, a thing. Okay, Mexnerd has asked something. Okay, Mexnerd is a person from Czech Republic, our Patreon. Thank you, Mexnerd. Mike Koop, I have a rather philosophical question. What effect does the war and terrorism we see online have on our culture, people, children? Does it tear us apart? Does it make us stronger? We've never seen so much uncensored violence before. Even children can see it. I was led to the question by the school's call to parents to delete their children's TikTok because Hamas was supposed to post its atrocities there. Yeah, um, I do err. Okay. So as a person who grew up on early internet... Various websites posted videos of Chechen execution videos, beheadings, and all that back in the 2000s. Like, I'm not going to say uh, someone can't grow up having not seen these things because I saw them. I think a lot of people did. But I, in my wizened years, I have come down on the side of I don't think people really need to see this most of the time. I don't think most adults need to see the even like these videos are going down right now of of that Hamas took themselves in many cases. I don't see it as having much value for most people to see them other than to mentally scar yourself. You can know these things happen. Does seeing it happen really make a huge difference? I don't really think so. That's the thing about, about kids, too, as I see it. I grew up watching all sorts of R-rated movies because they were the ones available on, on VHS tapes here in post-Soviet Union. I, I don't know. I think kids are smart enough to understand, you know, what's traumatizing and what's not and what should go to them and what shouldn't. Hiding yourself, even if some traumatizing material could happen, even if you were worried that your kid might be traumatized, it's more important to, instead of hiding it from them, the context and explanation 
should be there. So we watched Come and See you know, my birthday, and that's one of the darkest movies ever. And you shouldn't hide your kids from darkness. Yeah, but that's that's fiction. That is fiction. A lot of, but, but this is based on a lot of true stuff as well. But reality is real and raw. This is what Heidegger would say. This is when you meet the nothing. This is when you meet the existence, the raw existence itself. But even then, uh, I don't. I, 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 most people won't care, and those who will care, I don't. I don't think it's going to hurt anyone if that is given proper explanation to your kids. The kids are just going to grow up tougher, I think. But my problem there becomes so these real life gore videos is essentially what they are. Are people watching these execution videos, etc., to learn something or out of entertainment? Oh, I misunderstood in this case. I thought, you know, about kids watching the news stuff. I think even the context of news, are, a lot of these videos are not being treated as like a serious bit of academic data, which in that case, how many people really need that, but as getting some kind of cheap thrill out of it. And I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> this will be my, my part of ultra cynicism here. People have gone and watched executions in public for a long time okay people have found their entertainment there's a subgroup of very sick people who somehow maybe need this who find fun in this and they'll exist there and tiktok well if tiktok shows this to your kids it's uh well it's a problem with tiktok because you can't like tiktok is a chinese app right in china uh their content is totally different most of the stuff that you see in in the rest of the world is banned in china there is no thirst picks uh, in china there's no uh gambling stuff none of the most of the nonsense you see chinese tiktok is all about educational content because it's tiktok is literally made to um and not even kidding i'm quoting a communist party official here tiktok was created to rot western people's brains it's a quote, okay? So I, w- I would highly recommend if your children are on TikTok, just get them off of TikTok. It's a very intentionally bad thing, and not just because of this situation. Just say it. Yeah, I think my broader point here is I'm not asking to like necessarily censor it or keep it out of people's hands. I just think that there is a certain amount of actual desensitization that happens when it's a real thing that's treated as a fake thing. I think it's good to have two categories to to put things in. Like there's there's fiction and there's nonfiction. There's like the most gruesome horror movie you've ever seen and then there's literal war footage. I feel like there is too much blending of the two. Oh yeah, someone mentioned painfotainment. Exactly. Dan Carlin, of course, always covers everything painfotainment. But the, I think eroding the barrier between the two, I don't know what the negative results of that are. <laughs> I just feel like there are some. Oh, by the way, uh, t- talking about painfotainment, one, one thing though, uh, dear listeners, as I'm not on them, thing formerly known as Twitter, Dan promised me to come on in October. Now it's October. So uh, if you can tag him uh, so that he would actually check his email, that'd be nice. But we had a question from Catch Paul the Herald, my fellow Latvian here. He said that, uh, do you think that the unequivocal support for Israel from the quote-unquote West will give Hamas more support in the Palestinian population or will it have no significant effect? Question is, what is the support of uh, Hamas and the Palestinian population? Just give give a brief overrun because I, I know it's a bit of a mixed bag here. Minority support, but significant support, I think is the best way to say it. More people 
don't support them than do. But like that goes for any political party. I'm not going to to stand here and say that like they're completely against the will of the Palestinian people. You know, it's they've they've been in charge long enough for their own corruption to bring their own problems. But the then becomes like, what's their competition? Their competition is Fatah and the PA, who have functionally zero support. So in politics, you don't have to be the necessarily not hated. You just have to be the least hated, which Hamas is in the position of being right now. American support, uh, does that affect uh, the support for Hamas? Yeah, a bit, but it kind of goes both ways. The fact that Hamas is the one who is opposing, you know, Western imperialism, um, as it's seen, the fact that they're the ones opposing the U.S., whereas Fatah and the PA are the ones who have become, you know, slaves to the West um, in their estimation, that is a major mark in their favor for many, many Palestinians, that they are not the ones who are bought out, who did not, you know, sell themselves for power. But at the same time, like I said earlier, the fact that the Palestinians are backed into such a corner right now, the fact that the U.S. has pretty much given up any substantial effort to create the two-state solution, the Arab states have turned the back on them, that there is no one supporting the Palestinians at all. And that goes for other Arab and Muslim states. That is also the thing that creates the conditions for Hamas to be popular. Diplomacy doesn't work, then violence therefore must work, therefore we'll support the violence. Is Sadly, Azerbaijan and Armenia, but Azerbaijan can sort of prove that violence at this point does really work. It does, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. We live in interesting times. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of things, but there's any... As we're going through this, I would like to say that uh, please, when Victor arrives... Make sure that he he keeps in touch. I'm not sure about his new car. Peremoga one was successfully given away. Um, I'm not sure if he even has a car. I don't know how he's going to move, but he's experienced right now. Question, will the United States be involved? Another question, how do you feel that the Iranian people support Israel? Uh, will the U.S. be involved? Will be involved financially, diplomatically? Yes, absolutely. The U.S. and Israel do have a very special relationship. They'll support the Israeli government no matter what it does, essentially. Although right now, what the Israeli government is, I saw that kind of talked about as well with this whole idea of a unity government. The fact that the sitting government of Israel allowed this to happen makes them extraordinarily unpopular. I've seen several incidents of government ministers practically being assaulted on the street by Israelis, people yelling at them of like, this is what you brought on us, that kind of deal. I think this is very important to point out. One of the reasons why the Hamas raid was such a success is because so yeah I'm getting this question why do you think of the failure of Israeli intelligence part of the reason why this failure happened is because so many of Israel's security resources were focused on the West Bank rather than Gaza uh, partially because there's a lot of settlers who for the last year or so have been doing a lot of uh, violence against Palestinians there need to be a lot of security resources sent their way to protect them from uh, reprisal attacks. So something like 70% was the number I saw. 70% of the number of troops who were supposed to be guarding the Gaza border 
were sent to the West Bank, especially for uh, the holidays, uh, to protect the holiday revelers. Which means that all this together, people are very, very, very mad at the Israeli government for failing in the responsibility to protect Jews. And that's going with, you know, if you followed Israeli politics, I have no idea how how to even round that up. But to say that for the last few years, it's been a complete mess is an understatement. So the U.S. government can't exactly lead the Israeli government by the nose or anything, but American support should be very ready for the idea of Netanyahu losing his position in some way. They need to be on their toes with the political situation. How do you feel that Iranian people uh, support Israel? I don't think most of them do. There is some, how do you say it, when you basically just go against whatever the government does because you hate the government. There's some of that going on. There's quite a bit of that going on, actually. A lot of people in Iran, Iran understand that their government is responsible for so many terrible things and just just being one of them. I wouldn't necessarily call that support for Israel per se, but I would say against Hamas, at least. Thus, people forget that they have their own local struggles like Iran versus Saudis and Yemen, because everything there is a proxy situation. Once again, I have to come back and blame the British on this one. Oh, and the French, too. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to Dan Carlin's blueprint for Armageddon, especially later episodes about how after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the borders were drawn. Then you'll understand that, uh, to be frank, for the most part, there's a lot of British and French blame on, on everything happening around these parts. I have a special question that's going to leave for the latest because Kendra asked one, and Kendra is super special because she, she's, she sent me two packages with, with uh, beef jerky and, and snacks, and I love that. We have another question. Do you think there's more conflicts around the world giving others confidence to spark more conflicts? <sighs> Max, do you want to ask about more conflicts sparking conflicts? Of course, that's going to happen. This decade, in my eyes, is going to be horrible. We're going to see things sorting themselves out, conflicts that should have been solved for a while ago, and the whole impotence of the United Nations and everything. There are going to be lots of troubles and lots of things. And, and you, you, you should feel happy, Max Nerd, for living in, in a Czech Republic, or Czechia, more precise, because I don't think much is going to happen over there. This is not going to be an easy decade, and we're going to have to deal with a lot of, a lot of problems on our own, have to figure a lot of things out. I talked about this a bit on my last podcast as well with, you know, Right now, it's hard to put this uh, into context when, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were so huge. But if you look at, you know, the numbers of conflicts that are going on, small scale, large scale, there was a lot of them in the early 90s when there was you know, the move away from the Cold War. Um, a lot of different you know, governments and rebel groups and so on kind of lost their support, either because they're supported by the Soviet Union or because the U.S. didn't see the need to support them anymore. There's a collapse of the world system of the bipolar Cold War. As a result of that, there is many, many wars to kind of see what the new shuffle of it would be. And I think right now we're starting to see not a collapse to that extent but we know that russia was able to take crimea and nothing was done about it um that kind of weakened the idea of of wars of aggression being against the rules 
if you look at what Azerbaijan asserting its control over its internationally recognized borders, though I am very much not a big fan of how they go about doing that, ethnic cleansing, they're able to do that with no complaints, really, by the international community. Niger, Mali, the entirety of the Sahal has had, you know, war after war after war, uh, all popping up with really the same things. Myanmar is still going on. We have Ethiopia. There's oh yeah, Ethiopia. Ethiopia might also go to the war with with Egypt because of dam as well. We have uh, Sudan, South Sudan situation. Then uh, what else? What else is is uh, of course India, Pakistan, China always always on on uh, the whole edge of, of everything a lot of these wars are not necessarily connected by their causes but my point here is that there is kind of a unwinding where certain taboos are broken and there's no repercussions for breaking that taboo uh so people see that. at least in the post sphere i've heard the opinion which i tend to agree with is the fact that we didn't have these violent breakups uh, when the soviet union collapsed unlike say yugoslavia when they have their wars and everything. We didn't have them because of the politicians of that time and they just got frozen. Because right now we have Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan even like getting into arguments and everything. And right now all those wars that should have been, could have been fought in 1981, they're just coming back, at least in both Soviet sphere. At least. That's another thing. Kyrgyzstan and... I think it was Tajikistan or Turkmenistan, one of those. Tajikistan, are, they had a border, had a small border war uh, like, like two years ago, I think it was. Time means nothing to... Recently, that looks like it will start up again a lot. There's a lot happening. There's a lot happening right now. We've been talking for a long time already, and we'll, we'll be covering all this situation, but I just want to give you a question because of Kendra. She, she's on my special Patreon level. You know, There are patrons, and there are people who have sent you two packages full of snacks and two pairs of jeans and, and a jacket and, and, the, and, and the hat. Seriously, she, she sent me a cowboy hat. Oh, yeah. Anthony, she, I have a real cowboy hat. She, she deserves something else. And she said, uh, really, so something positive, because she's trying to learn here. Uh, she asked, Anthony, what's some good news from Ukraine that you can share to give us some optimism? Because, you know, Kendra wants to end this with, uh, with some optimism here. And I feel really obliged. End it with optimism. Um, I have been in a pit of emotional despair for several days, but really two years. But positive things. Well... Um, I, I still have my arms and legs, and you seem to have them as well. Um, yeah, uh, marijuana legalization is moving forward. I, th- I think at this point we might, we might need this. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, so that might be legal soon. That's nice. Um, there is... I'm very grateful for the Patriot system. I'll say that. Uh, where I am specifically in Kiev was open to a lot of attack, and I have not seen something in a very long time, thanks in large part to the fact that the Patriot defense system is extremely effective to the point where Russia has not bothered us here in Kiev as much as they had. And going into the winter, I think that... Knock on wood, foot, 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 hamsa, hamsa, hamsa. They will be less able to damage electric infrastructure in Kiev than they were last year, uh, which 
was pre- was pretty rough. Was pretty rough. Not gonna lie. Just not to give away your position, but uh, let's just say that uh, where Anthony lives in Kiev, he has seen a. Uh, literal drones and, and i think maybe some missiles too i'm not sure about that but certainly drones flying just just towards him a couple of times so pretty often yeah yeah sadly sadly this is what it is you take care of victor and uh, let me know what's happening when victor arrives let me know everyone please uh do listen to ukraine without hype and well, this was a sad philosophical episode. Uh, Anthony, please uh, remind people about your show because I'm pretty sure most people listen to you anyways, but let people know. Yes. Oh, you can listen to us over at Ukraine Without Hype. We are the only uh, avowedly leftist p- podcast uh, <laughs> covering events in Ukraine. Oh, you have to. So you have taken a political. Yes, yes, that is. I in part of the purpose is that in our normal journalist jobs, we have to be all neutral and stuff. Uh, so for our own project, we can get a bit more opinionated. Oh, well, so we are a leftist English language news podcast covering Ukraine, uh, the only one of that kind. I think I don't know how other people see themselves, but I think we're the only ones who would actually say that directly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't, I don't consider myself leftist. I consider myself the Eastern border. We collaborate on everything, so it doesn't really matter how I call myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'll plop up in, in Kiev next time, I'm, I know where to find you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you've been here a few times. You get the idea. Uh, started up on YouTube and TikTok to promote ourselves, although I don't really know what really to do with those two platforms. Well, we're trying to figure something out. I'm asking Victor questions about how video works, even though I used to literally work in TV. I get the idea, but, you know, <laughs> um, we cover recently. We do a lot of news roundups, though. We're trying to get into more you know, topical things as well. We have I drafted up an episode to basically talk about Ukrainian internal politics. And if there was an election, what would it look like is what we're going to be trying to answer. That's the big issue about Ukrainian internal stuff, because for one, there, there are some some serious questions I like to ask uh, Ukrainian military command as well sometimes. And and especially for one, conflict intelligence, conflict intelligence group, uh, the uh, Ruslan is, which is the most. A lot of things are going on there, which I don't cover because I sit down on on more of the Russian propaganda side and poison my brain with watching Solovyov and Simonyan. Meanwhile, Anthony literally lives in Kiev. I have been to his home a couple of times, slept in his room next to his uh, what was that? Uh, I think it was it was calendars. Go listen to Ukraine without hype. Anthony is amazing and great, and uh, wow, we had some uh, horrible, horrible discussions here, but, but they're needed. I think they're needed. I think that the more I hear about this value of human life and how everything is quantified, the more you have to remind people that you can't do this, that this is human tragedy in, in any case. Every time the numbers drown out the human voices, you have to go back, bring it back to personal level. We, we cannot allow suffering on such a level, be it Ukraine or Israel or anywhere else, just to just to fall away to some economical numbers. I, I, I would hate myself if that would happen because then that would mean I would lose some of my own humanity. That, that's it from me, if you have any last words. Yeah, I think that's my cap off as well is on the topic here, when you see 10,000 people die on the news, that is a person with a name. 
as a person with a family, as a person with a history, likes, dislikes, people they love, people they hate, people who love and hate them. Sometimes in the case of war, frankly, they deserve to die. Uh, I say if, if a Russian soldier is, you know, destroying a village, it has to happen. But at the end, even that is, I have to remind myself, a tragedy in its own way of that person did not have to be there. Something led to that. Can we avoid the things that led to that so that doesn't happen? We have to learn from this. I mean, we should just try to make everything better. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and as always, for one, and remember, happiness is mandatory. And that does not mean that uh, you should always, you know, force your smile or something. Just when someone forces you to, to feel happy, just find a way how to be actually happy. Happiness is mandatory means like pushing through all this stuff and finding something that keeps you going, even in the darkest of times. So uh, that's about it. Can't advertise myself this time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.